Did you hear that Sylvanus is in town? What? Sylvanus is here? All the way from Rome? I'm pretty sure I saw him yesterday. That's... that's so strange. Last I heard, he was with John Mark in Rome. Well, word on the street is, is that he's been to Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, and Asia. Apparently, Bithynia is his last stop before heading back to the port of Sinope, where he'll catch a ship back to Rome. I wonder what he's doing. I heard he's delivering a letter written by the Apostle Peter to the different churches throughout the provinces in Rome. A letter from Peter? Who could that be? We believe in equipping the saints to think biblically, evangelize the lost, and disciple one another. We run together as one body, striving for Jesus' standard because we love Him. We cultivate an environment that is pleasing to God and offensive to sin. While we welcome sinners, we cannot and will not shy away from repentance. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to the first century church experience. You guys just got a taste of what life would have been like if you were a part of the church when it was birthed in the first century. I'd like us to pause for a moment while we attempt to visualize what would life, what would it have been like for those who were alive during this time? We just said it was the first century, the era when the church was birthed, so a quick and easy first observation is that electricity is not available. So there would be no lights as we know lights. Is that a fair observation? Okay, so no lights. It's true that the temple occupied Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And as you would move away from Jerusalem, synagogues would be peppered throughout all the different cities. But those were places for Jews to gather. There was no buildings for the early church to meet in. So you had home churches. So you have no lights and you have no buildings. No buildings, no stage. Home church environment, let's close our eyes and think. What do the Gospels teach us about what life may have looked like in the home church? Well, we know that Martha was angry at Mary because she was seated at the feet of Jesus while he was instructing those who were considered to be his disciples in the home environment. What does it mean to be seated at the feet of Jesus? 
apostles would recline at table during the Last Supper. Anybody want to give up their seat? Because in the early church, there are no seats. No one is comfortable. No lights. No stage. No building. No seats. Most importantly, nobody gets to walk around with one of these. Because there is no mass production of the text. It's clear from the content of the letter, the letter that we just listened to in its entirety. Do you know that that would have been the experience of the church? They would have sat while somebody read the whole letter. The whole letter. What would that experience be like if you were hearing it for the first time? And it's clear from the context of the letter that life in the days of the early church was no walk in the park. Persecution and suffering. Standard. Which is why perseverance and endurance is peppered throughout the letter. So I'd like us to consider the life-changing impact a letter like this would have on the small home churches scattered throughout the provinces in Rome. As modern students of the text, sometimes I wonder, myself included, I wonder if we lack the perspective required to think critically about the impact such a letter would have. Listen to this. New Testament scholar Robert Gundry writes that early Christian tradition shows some uncertainty as to whether John Mark wrote his gospel before or after the martyrdom of the Apostle Peter. And we believe according to tradition, that sometime between AD 64 and 67, Peter was martyred in Rome. That's what we believe. We also believe that John Mark authored his gospel for a largely Roman audience. So if we take that data into account and we place it on the table, it's logical to conclude that the letter of 1 Peter was in circulation prior to the completion of the earliest Written account of the gospel. Imagine hearing 1 Peter for the first time and having no gospel account to give you the context for the life of Christ. We're so spoiled. We are so spoiled and we don't even know it. Do we think about these things? What would church be like for us? If we only had one copy of the letter that Peter wrote and a fragmented copy of the Old Testament that was translated into Greek, would we be as faithful as we are? We are outdone, left and right, by those who lived in the early church. Some of us have Bibles in every room in our house, and we can't even read it every day. They couldn't imagine what life would be like for us. The access to this, multiple translations, digital, logos, Bible software, commentaries. They couldn't have dreamt of having access to the amount of information that we have. And they outdo us at every turn of the corner. 
It's true. Church as we know it would be very different if we had to live as they had to live. How often do we meditate on these things? When we pick up the Word of God to read it, do we think about what people had to go through so that we can have what we have today? I know I don't. I know I don't pick up the Bible every time and think about the people who died so that we could have what we have. It's my opinion that we should contemplate these realities often because I believe it will help to inform our approach to the text in a way that actually honors God and honors those who went before us. By now, most of you have probably figured it out. But for those of us who are unaware, today marks sermon number one in our series in 1 Peter. So I'd like to invite you to bow your heads with me in a word of prayer as we prepare to launch into our introduction sermon. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather with no persecution. We acknowledge, God, that we have access to more information at our fingertips with the click of a button or the touch of a screen than the early church ever could have imagined. We have knowledge and understanding that comes to us from the Dead Sea Scrolls, from archaeology, from the Reformation, from those who stayed faithful during the post-Enlightenment, from the Enlightenment era and the post-Enlightenment era. God, we have the writings of Bible scholars who have dedicated their lives to single aspects of the text because they didn't have to, to they didn't have to dedicate their whole lives to the study of the text as the church fathers did. We are so grateful, Lord. But we need to remember, Father, help us to remember what your word said. To he who has been given much, much will be expected. Yes. So, Father, we pray that we would understand where we stand before you. And that we would see how you have called us to live our lives. So that the world might be changed not by us, but by you through us. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> so we're doing an introduction to 1 Peter because we're going to spend the next few months in this letter. And so, you know, people show up to church and they anticipate a sermon that they can go, yes! That one thing that the pastor said really encouraged me. I'm going to take this, stuff it in my gas tank, and hope it takes me till next Sunday. Today's not going to be like that. It's not. We're going to set the context historically for the letter so that in the weeks and months ahead, as we read it and study it together, we can actually wrap our minds around it in a way that helps us to understand the author's intent and the audience's understanding. Yeah. We talk a lot about that around here because we don't want to forget it. And so if we're going to do a survey of a letter in the New Testament, what better way to start with a question? And look, today's going to be highly interactive. A lot of you are going to be, I'm going to be calling on you to ask, uh, to read scripture. If you're uncomfortable reading in public, just be like, I don't want to do it. And we'll ask somebody else to do it. We're a family here. We do our Bible studies as a group. Yeah. So I'm going to start this morning's study with a question. What comes to mind when I say the word epistle? 
Demetrius, you know, guys like um, church fathers like Tertullian, you know, the guys that wrote the Didache, uh, the Shepherd of Hermes, like all of these can be considered epistles. But we usually only think about epistles as the, the letters that have been confined to the canon. And that's not wrong, it's just a little nearsighted, I would say. So let's think about this idea of what is an epistle out loud together. New Testament scholar J. Scott Duvall reminds us that long before the days of TikTok and Snapchat and MySpace and Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, long before these things existed, people actually sat down at a desk or in a chair with a pen and a piece of paper and an envelope and a stamp, and they poured out their hearts into letters to loved ones. And they didn't try to do it in 30 characters or less. He goes on to say that people in the ancient world wrote letters for the same reasons, or many of the same reasons, that we do today. So not much has changed from then to now when we think of the reasons why individuals write letters. As humans, we have an intrinsic desire to be present with the ones we love. Yes or no? Yes. Yes. Sometimes life makes that difficult, doesn't it? Sometimes it makes it impossible. I look out over this room and I see fathers, plural, who currently are separated by the law from their family members, specifically their children. That sucks. I look out over this audience, I see men and women who, like me at one time, decided to put on a uniform, leave their family, friends, and the comfort of their home country to go and stand in a, in, in, in a place that was required we stand in so that we could wage war against an enemy so that our, our family, friends, and our homeland could remain safe and free. I look out over this congregation, I see men and women who have spent time in prison. When the circumstances of life dictate separation or isolation, we choose to write letters. Isaac, mail. It's a game changer, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing like a little commissary time and some letters to up the morale of an individual who's forced to be separated from the ones they love. Letters. I know that sounds like the majority. 
when you say 21 of 27, but in actuality, it's only about 35% of the entire New Testament. When you take the epistles in their totality and you hold them against the four gospels, the acts of the apostles, and the apocalyptic writings of the revelation of Jesus Christ, the New Testament is outweighed. It is not largely composed of letters. These are things that we should think about when we come to the text of Scripture because the New Testament, although it appears to be dominated by letters, in actuality, it's not. Now I want to talk briefly about two other things in connection with the epistles. And then we'll shift our focus. First, I'd like to mention that all. Say the word all. All. That excludes them. By definition, all excludes them. All of the New Testament letters are occasional in nature. If we miss this, if we don't understand this, if we choose to overlook this, we will skew the Word of God. By definition, it will no longer be the Word of God. If you twist the Word of God to make it something that it's not, it loses its authority. That's why we have pastors that we don't submit to, because we believe they twist the Scriptures. By definition, when someone twists the Scriptures, it's no longer what God intended it to be. We have to remember that all of the New Testament letters are occasional in nature. What does this mean? It means that they were occasioned or called forth by some specific circumstance, either from the reader's side or the author's side. Now we can say that another way, so let's say that differently. New Testament letters were written to address specific situations or specific problems related to the original author or the audience which means that New Testament letters were written to meet the practical needs of those who received the letters. Written to them for us. We say that a lot too. Second, as modern students of the text, it's our responsibility to understand that the epistles are not, first of all, theological treatises. They're letters. Nor are they summaries of the author's theology. They're letters. There is theology implied within the letters, but it's always task theology. Theology being written for or brought to bear on the task at hand. Remember, all the New Testament letters are occasional. New Testament letters were never meant to function as exhaustive dictionaries of Christian doctrine. Rather than writing systematic theologies, the authors of the text use their letters to apply theology in practical ways targeting specific situations facing different churches. That's why it's the letter to the church in Ephesus. Or the letter to the church in Colossae. Or the letter to the church in Rome. Or Paul's letter to Philemon. Different genres means that not all letters were created equally. They have equal authority, but they are not all created equally. If we don't know this stuff, we can't really study the Bible properly. And we don't need to be intimidated. That's why we come together as a group. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, say study alone and avoid all Christians. Yeah. And God will teach you the truth in its entirety. No, it says don't exclude the fellowship of the saints. Because we are dependent and reliant on one another. 
for the truest and fullest and deepest understanding. So when I'm skewed, God uses you to correct me, and when you're skewed, God uses me to correct you. That's how a family functions. So we have scratched the surface. So let's recap here. Um, Keaton, stand up for me, please. And just fire off all these uh, bullet points loud and proud for us. People in the ancient world wrote, uh, wrote letters. Letters. Are you struggling to see it? Yeah. Come on up closer. That's all right. He needs glasses. That's all right. It's not a problem. Letters function as a substitute for one's presence. 21 of the 27 books in the New Testament are letters. All New Testament letters are situational or occasional. New Testament letters include past theology. Okay. Give a round of applause. Now, I want to say one thing about this second point before we move on. Letters function as a substitute for one's presence. This is absolutely true. But in the context of the New Testament, letters function as a substitute for the authoritative presence of the apostle who is not present. When the apostle can't be present, he dictates the letter. He calls his messenger to take the letter. And when that, uh, when that, um, when that emissary shows up with the letter and reads it to the church, it's as if the apostle himself is present reading the letter. Yeah. This is why we talk about the text of Scripture being authoritative in our lives, in all matters of faith and practice. So, we have covered a little bit of the first century church culture, and we briefly discussed the topic of epistles. Are there any questions that we need to ask do we need to bring clarity to anything before we move forward from this point to the next one? There's nothing wrong with having a question. If you have a question and it doesn't get answered, that can cause anxiety. But when you have a question and it gets answered, that can produce peace and joy. And questions get answered in the midst of the fellowship. So if you have a question, now's the time to ask it. Define test theology. Task theology. So if a letter is situational or occasional, any of the implied theology in the letter is going to be specifically applied to tasking the practical problem at hand. You have a practical issue that you're facing in real time. The apostle is writing to this body of believers. Therefore, any of the implied theology is going to address the task that the apostle is calling them to achieve or overcome. Does that make sense? Okay. It, it does, but then doesn't that kind of open the door for people then to take those words in their text and say that doesn't apply to us because it was situational to that specific situation. Therefore, we're taking it out of context to apply it to our own life. So that would be true in the case that we didn't read the text of Scripture both vertically and horizontally. <coughs> now, what does it mean to read the text vertically and horizontally? Okay, so we have the Gospels. Specifically, we have the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So we can read them vertically and stay within just the letter of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, or just the Gospel of Luke. We can read them vertically, or we can say Mark and Luke are talking about the same things. Let's read them horizontally and see what they confirm about one another. Does that make sense? Within the Pauline corpus, 
or within the Petrini corpus, you can read just Paul's letters situationally to the church, or you, which would be vertically, or you can read them horizontally and say, look, Paul's theology and his doctrine is consistent. Amen. And therefore, because his theology and his doctrine is consistent in his advice to this body or this body, although he is addressing different situations specifically, the foundation of his theology is the same through and through. Does this make sense? Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Okay. Are you, is there still confusion? Not confusion, but I don't know if you answered um, my question as thoroughly as I'd like. I mean, obviously you're very thorough. But maybe I can um, rephrase that and then get it back to you when we talk about Sure, that. sure. That's brought to me, and they use that uh, test theology. Well, this doesn't actually apply to us, so we can't take these words out of context because within its context, it's, just, it's saying this and that specifically to this specific body. Yeah, and so you have, in, you have individuals who like to be very wooden with interpretation, you know, but you're going to experience problems if all of the word of God is for all of us for all time, who's going to go get Paul's coat at Trellaz and take it to him in Rome? Because that's an imperative. Get my coat in Trellaz and bring it to me. How are we going to do that? It's physically and literally impossible. So when we take a wooden interpretation of, well, if you're going to say it's task theology or it's only situational and it can't be applied then for all people and for all time, well, then we're going to have a problem because they're going to be the arbiter of what is and what is not. When we are going to lay the foundation and say for all people, for all time, for all places. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, that's good. Okay. Look, we're asking questions today because we're going to get into a difficult letter. And as we study the letter, we need to be able to dialogue with one another. There are all kinds of different perspectives in this church, and that's welcome and open. Because on the non-negotiables is where we agree. And there are very few non-negotiables when it comes to the Christian faith. So we're, we're keep that in mind as we move through, because there's going to be opportunities to ask questions. Because we're going to talk about authorship. To talk about authorship properly, I believe it's our responsibility to lay out both sides of the argument. To lay out both sides of the argument, we have to acknowledge that there are two sides to the argument. Every coin has two sides, right? Sometimes arguments have three or four sides. Just depends on how many people are in the room. You get four people in a room, you can get six perspectives. Just depends on what you're talking about. But we're going to talk about authorship of the letters, specifically betraying authorship. Those who are for and those who are against, because we have brothers and sisters in the Lord who see 1 Peter as an authoritative portion of the canon, but they don't believe Peter wrote it. And so let's begin by looking at the evidence in support of Petrine authorship. If I say that we're going to look at the internal evidence, what do you guys think that means? We're looking in the letter, right? Absolutely. You guys are on fire today. I don't even know why I'm preaching. Everybody want to just go home? <laughs> the answer should be no, hopefully. <laughs> We're going to confirm, we're going to do some stuff to confirm the internal evidence that may support Peter's authorship. Okay? So, uh, Nate, you got your Bible in your hand? Yeah. Why don't you stand up and read 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 for me, loud and proud. Give me a second. If I ask you to stand up and read today, give Brent a moment to get there, because the YouTube audience wants to be blessed by your participation, just like we are. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who are elect exiles of the dispensation in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Okay. 
Okay, so raise your hand if you think this is a claim to Petrain authorship. Raise it high. Don't, don't hide it. There's no need. There's, okay. Most people would agree with you that because it says from the Apostle Peter to the churches, they would just assume automatically that Peter is the author. Let's see here. Alex, you got your Bible? Can you stand up and read 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8 for us, please? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. So be truly glad there is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. Oh, excuse me, that's not a chapter, that's verse 6. Check, uh, verse 8 is the same, right? Yep. You love him even though you have never seen him. Though you do not see him now, you trust him, and you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. Thank you. Now, New Testament scholar Thomas Schreiner writes that in the past, some scholars have seen a contrast between readers who have not seen Christ, the audience of the letter, and Peter, the author, who has. However, Schreiner says this is hardly determinative, so don't stake your flag in the ground on this verse, he said. He's saying a stronger piece of evidence is found in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. Carl, can you stand up for us and read 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1? Grant's getting his steps in today, everybody. The elders who are among you at exhort, either in a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Okay, so here the author claims to be a witness to Christ's sufferings. Now let me tell you, you're going to find some brothers and sisters in the body of Christ who are going to say, if Peter wrote this letter, he couldn't have wrote this line. Because they're going to take you to the Gospels and they're going to say Peter was not at the crucifixion. Therefore, Peter couldn't say that he was a witness to the sufferings of Christ. Mark, this would be a wooden interpretation for someone to take that and take that scripture and say, this couldn't be written by Peter because he wasn't there for the sufferings. You see how narrow the interpretation of that is? It totally excludes that Peter was there for all three years of Christ's ministry and that Christ was persecuted by the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, the elders. He was persecuted by Caiaphas in the mock trial, by Herod Antipas, and by Pontius Pilate, and ultimately by the ones who would whip and nail him to the cross. Amen. Peter was present for the majority of that. He didn't need to be present for all of it. So he can say with authenticity that he is a witness to Christ's sufferings and still not be present for the crucifixion. Apparently only John was there for the crucifixion. So when someone tells you that if Peter wrote this letter and you read line, he'd be lying, remind them of Peter's presence in Christ's ministry about Christ's life and experience in its totality. And then things will come together. Finally, I would like uh, Ethan. Oh, wait. I was going to, sorry. Where do you want me to read? Can, I had some insight if you want me to share some insight on this. Can you read 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 real quick? 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. We're about to be reading horizontally now, not vertically, and we're in the Petrine Corpus. 1 Peter, 2 Peter. What does Peter say in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1? 
Beloved, this is now the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of a reminder. A second letter that I am writing you to stir up by way of reminder. So Peter's saying, this is the second letter I'm now writing to you, and he's using language that you can find specifically in Hebrews, that we are called to stir one another up to good works. So this is where the theology is consistent, because Hebrews, Mark, Hebrews is not, we don't know who wrote Hebrews. There's all kinds of different ideas. But the idea is that we can see the language in 2 Peter, and we can say it matches the language in Hebrews, and although they're different audiences, the theology and the foundation of the theology is unity. Does that make sense? So we've just done a vertical reading internally of the letter, and we've just done a horizontal reading within the Petrine Corpus to see that we can actually, based on the internal evidence, consider Peter to actually be the author. Having looked at the internal evidence, I'd like us to shift our focus to the external evidence in support of Petrine authorship. New Testament scholar Craig Blomberg writes that no alternatives to Petrine authorship of this letter, remember, this letter, 1 Peter, were ever suggested in antiquity. So if you go all the way back into church history, you have zero alternatives for authorship of 1 Peter. It's only Peter. Well, how do we prove this? Well, we can look at the writings of Irenaeus, Tertullian, a lot of the other church fathers. We could read 1 Clement, the Didache. Maybe we could say, oh, this sounds similar to what Peter wrote. They must be quoting him. But for the sake of time this morning, we're going to read only the words of Eusebius. So put this up, and I want everybody to read this out loud for me, please. Authorship of 
Peter, you know, it says, I, Peter, write this. Um, at that time, it was quite common to write in the name of someone because you admire them, you follow their teaching, you follow their tradition, you, you know, you follow their doctrine, or, you know, what have you, different religion even. But to write in somebody's name, to honor their name. But that person is not the author. 100%. So, just because it says, I, Peter, write this, does not actually, you know, could potentially mean that it wasn't Peter writing it at all. Amen. What she's talking about is called pseudonymy. Pseudonymy. Written in the name of another. Pseudepigraphic writings are different than pseudonymy. When you have someone like a scholar uh, like James Dunn, I think, who would say, like, oh, well, Daniel was written long after Daniel died. And so Daniel couldn't have written it. But it was written in the name of Daniel because the name of Daniel would ascribe authority to the letter. And therefore, people would then submit to its authority. And they would do it with no malicious intent. Yeah. And they would do it with no desire to deceive. Yeah. And it would be well accepted. Now, don't quote me on the fact that James Dunn says that, but I think that he's one of the scholars who would say that. I noticed something, too, um, and uh, it, kind of, it kind of goes along with the external evidence. Yep. Um, I noticed something in 1 Peter 5, verse 2. I know we read out of verse 1. Mm -hmm. But verse 2, uh, assumably Peter is talking about uh, the elders and, and what the responsibility is. It says, shepherd the flock of God. And it kind of reminded me of when Tommy to stand up and read this note from his Bible, 
because we want to understand what this word uneducated in the Greek language means. But Tommy's downstairs in inverse operations, so I'm going to ask Brent to read the note. He's going to read it from the Net Bible, and it's specifically tied to the context of the term uneducated. It should be the lowercase d right there, Brent. Right? Read it out loud. Uneducated does not mean illiterate. That is, unable to read or write. Among Jews in New Testament times, there were almost universal literacy, especially as a result of widespread synagogue schools. The term refers to the fact that Peter and John had no formal rabbinic training, and thus, in the view of their accusers, they were not qualified to expound the law or teach publicly. The objection is like Acts. So uneducated does not mean illiterate. There it is. There's one perspective from the scholars. Okay, so they raise the objection via the question, how can an uneducated Galilean fisherman pen such eloquent Greek? Well, now we know that uneducated doesn't mean illiterate, so we can say just that. Uneducated is not illiterate. That's how. And they could say, no, 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 the eloquence of the Greek, you must be like educated to a high degree. It's not like the undergrad student, it's like the doctorate student, right? Okay? Well, with all of that in mind, let's ask a few questions. First question, would such a person, assuming Peter was literate, have learned to read and write Greek? Well, let's ask ourselves, where did Peter live? He lived in Galilee. What did Peter's family own in Galilee? A fishing business. A successful fishing business. We know this because in the first century, Peter's family had a large enough house to house Jesus, all of his disciples, and the family comfortably. That's what the gospel, that's the picture the gospel paid for us. So the business had to be successful, and they were wealthy. Do we believe that only Jews lived in Galilee in the first century? No. Remember, this is the Pax Romana era. So there would be a Roman presence, and there would be lots of Gentiles frequenting the Galilean area. What's the standard language in the marketplace in the first century? It's the Greek language. If Peter is a businessman who's successful, and Greek is the standard language in the marketplace, and he's doing buy-sell trades, and he's writing receipts, do you think he's going to need to know how to write in Greek? How about Hebrew? What about Aramaic? There's your answers. Yes, Peter could learn to read and write Greek. Uneducated is not illiterate. Second, is there any reason to believe that Peter studied Greek over the years, ending up with a finer style than Paul? I would say no. Paul grew up in Tarsus. He was educated at the feet of Gamaliel. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He could read the Hebrew, read the Greek, and he was a trained scribe. I would say no, but just because I say no, doesn't mean it's impossible. Peter could have done it. Missionaries, adult missionaries, go into the world today. They go to unreached people groups. They learn languages that nobody else knows how to speak. Then they find out that the language isn't even written yet. There's no graphical letters for, for the language. So they create one, and then they translate the Bible into that language. So it's not impossible that over the latter years of Peter's life, he could have learned or developed his Greek. It's not impossible. I believe that it would be difficult for him to move beyond Paul's ability, but that's just my opinion. Difficult, remember, is far from impossible. And third, if Peter is responsible for writing the eloquent Greek in 1 Peter, we have to ask the question, why is it absent from 2 Peter? New Testament scholar Peter Davids correctly observes that the person responsible for the poor level of Greek in 2 Peter could not have written 1 Peter or vice versa. So the Greek in 2 Peter is vastly different from the Greek in, in 2 Peter. 
with you guys. In my opinion, this objection is easily answered when we consider the Sylvanus hypothesis. And this hypothesis is just grounded in the reality that back in the first century, amanuensises, or scribes, were employed to write for low-class and high-class people. So if that was the standard in culture then, why would Peter reject the standard, and why would he just have scribes dictating, uh, writing the letters he dictates? He would just be doing what everybody else is doing. So it's not problematic. We'll deal more thoroughly with this when we get to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12, because that's where Sylvanus is mentioned, but we'll, we'll want to mention it now. So we can discuss other objections to Petrine authorship. Some scholars say that Peter's too dependent on the Pauline corpus. They say Peter couldn't have written 1 Peter if he didn't have a copy of Ephesians. The same scholars who reject Petrine authorship of 1 Peter are going to reject Pauline authorship of the Ephesians. So how can it be dependent on Paul when Paul didn't even write Ephesians in their Bible? It's a circular argument from silence. And they give him no solution. When they say he didn't write the letter, they just say he didn't write it, and they say we can never know who wrote it, and therefore it is what it is. Okay, that may be satisfying for you, but you're arguing from silence in a circular way, and you're avoiding internal and external evidence for both the Bible and Christian history. We just have to say that. They can hold their opinion. We can hold ours. Now, I agree with Dr. Keener, who writes that Occam's Razor suggests that the simpler solution is most probable. And that simpler solution is that Peter, as the, as the apostle he was, remained alive and composed or directed the writing of the letter with significant collaboration or assistance. Both Sylvanus and John Mark are mentioned in the close of the letter. So significant collaboration or assistance is not off the table. And Paul writes with the help of Timothy in 1 Thessalonians. So let's just call a spade a spade and say, it's actually probably more probable that Peter just wrote the letter. I have some insight uh, from Exodus uh, when Moses was talking to the Lord. The Lord was prompting him to go and speak. And Moses, this is in verse 10 of Exodus 4, says, Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, either recently or in time past, nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. And the Lord was, was trying to prompt him to like, yeah, the Lord says, who has made the human mouth, or who makes anyone unable to speak or deaf, or able to see or blind? Is that not I, the Lord? Yeah, if God can transform our hearts and our minds, He can grow us not only spiritually, but He can grow us in our physical giftings and capacities as well. Yeah. So that's great context. Again, we're reading this information both vertically and horizontally, and we're doing it as a group. So we've talked on the authorship, let's talk about the audience. Again, as modern students of the text, we have to ask the question, how do we accurately identify the original audience of 1 Peter, and is it even possible? Well, in my opinion, we have to answer two different questions correctly if we hope to accomplish this task with any accuracy. The first question we have to ask is, is it even possible to take a map out and identify the geography named in the letter? And question number two is, was Peter writing in 1 Peter to a predominantly Jewish or Gentile audience. So let's tackle question one. Now Nathan already read 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, but if you weren't listening or you weren't here, open your Bible and read it to yourself right now. You're going to see five Roman provinces in, the Asia, in Asia Minor. So 
So the first question is, is it, uh, is it possible to identify the proper geography on a map? So let's look at a map. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Okay? So it is possible. And if we were looking at a modern-day map, we'd be looking at modern-day Turkey, the western portion of it. So let's ask some more questions while the map stays up. Well, actually, first let me read this to you. New Testament scholars, plural, Dennis Edwards and Joel Green, describe 1 Peter as an encyclical letter that's addressed to different churches throughout five provinces of Asia Minor. So there's two scholars who would say that it's addressed to different churches, different churches who probably have different situational reasons for Peter writing the letter, and that the letter is going to be carried to all of these churches throughout five provinces in Asia Minor. What does it mean when they say it's an encyclical letter? Well, what they're getting at is the order that the cities or the provinces are laid out in in 1 Peter. So let's look at it. Now, you have cardinal directions, north, east, south, west, right? Rome is over here, way to the west. It doesn't exist on the map, right? Because there's TV screens not big enough. <laughs> but Rome's on the map. So, Sylvanus is present, probably helping Peter compose the letter. The letter is finally written copied and copied and copied because it's going to multiple churches in different provinces, and he's got to get from Rome to the provinces. How does he get there? Well, he sails. Because that's the quickest way to travel in the first century. He comes up, and he probably dismounts. This is my conjecture. Okay, He probably dismounts at Sinop. Why does he dismount at Sinop? It's an encyclical letter. He comes down south through Pontus into North Galatia, travels through Galatia, south into Cappadocia, or Cappadocia, then up into Galatia, the southern regions where Paul evangelized the Galatians, came through into Asia, up through Asia, north by northeast through Bithynia, and when he finishes his missions trip, he jumps back on the boat and goes back to Rome. It's not a perfect circle, but it's encyclical in nature, getting to all the regions and all the provinces to all the churches. So there is probably a reason why the order exists in the text the way that it does. And that's not just my opinion. Read Dennis Edwards or read Joel Green. So we can answer question number one in the affirmative. Yes, we can plot these cities or these provinces on a map, and we can identify them properly. But what about question number two? Was 1 Peter written to a predominantly Jewish or Gentile audience? Now, Mark, your question earlier was great because we're about to get into it right now. And we may have a difference of opinion on this, and that's fine. You know, I was talking to Brent all week about this, and when we first started talking, he was like, no, nah, no, nah, it ain't the way you see it, it's this way. And then we kept reading, and we were like, uh, maybe it is this way. And now, although there are differences of opinion, there are less differences as we've been studying over the past week. So let's look at uh, the question. Is the audience predominantly Jewish or Gentile? This is going to inform our interpretation of the letter. If we believe Paul is writing to a Jewish audience, it's, his principal writings are going to have a different methodology undergirding them than if he's writing to Gentiles because they come from different cultures. So we would just have to acknowledge that. So here we're looking at the, the question of the audience, right? So people go straight to Galatians chapter 2, verse 7 and 8, 
Let's put the next slide up with Galatians. And it says, Peter has been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. It says it twice. Peter, for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised. The circumcised are the Jewish people. And the author of Galatians, Paul, he says, my ministry, which came to me through the Holy Spirit, was to the Gentiles. They said if, Paul, if Peter wrote 1 Peter, the letter would have to be written to a largely Jewish audience because Peter is the apostle to the circumcised. I would be like, ooh, slow down. That's a very wooden interpretation of what you read in Galatians. I would say that I reject such a wooden interpretation and I would reject it on the grounds that Acts chapter 10, we see the apostle Peter clearly evangelize Cornelius his family, and his friends. And he does this before Paul is on his Gentile mission trips. Oh, we can also look at the book of Acts, and we can say everywhere that Paul goes on his missionary journeys, if there's a synagogue in the city, he always goes to the synagogue first before evangelizing the Jews, or before evangelizing the Gentiles. And we can confirm that in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, where he says, to the Jew first, and then to the Greek. So even Paul would be like, don't take what I write in Galatians and make it something that I never made it to be. Paul was saying that I had to go to Jerusalem to visit Peter in the context of Galatians. There's one, two, three trips if you read Galatians and read it horizontally with Acts. And so for, for Paul to actually meet with Peter, James, and John, he has to go to Jerusalem. That's why Paul says... Peter is the apostle to the Jews, and I'm the apostle to the Gentiles. It's the context that sets and determines the meaning. Now, some people would agree, disagree with me and say that I'm wrong, and I would say, it's fine. It's not a salvific issue. It's not going to affect whether or not we are saved. But I believe that we have sufficiently demonstrated that Galatians chapter 2, verse 7 and 8 are at least inconclusive in proving the audience of 1 Peter to be only or largely Jewish. So let's look at the internal evidence of the letter to see if we can identify who the original audience is. Let's put this up. First one. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Passions of your former ignorance. For Peter to make the claim that the audience lived in ignorance sounds nondescriptive, in my opinion, of the Jewish people, since we know that the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. See Romans chapter 3, verse 2. Let's look at the next one. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. The feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Hmm. I think the language here is even more direct than our last example. To claim that the nation of Israel had been redeemed from an empty way of life is not indicative of Israel's history. We know that Israel had received the Mosaic Covenant along with legislation at Mount Sinai, and they were in essence the apple of Yahweh's eye. See Zechariah chapter 2 verse 8. If you think I'm taking that interpretation too loosely, let's read the next one. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, don't quote me on this yet, but I think this is a quote that Peter's established from Hosea in the birth narrative of Gomer's children. But even if it is taken from the Old Testament, we can ask ourselves, does this sound like a statement we would want to apply to God's elect people? That they were not a people. God made a promise to Abraham. 
In you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Was God joking? Did Israel exist when God made that promise? And they didn't. Israel did not exist until Jacob was born, and when God changed his name to the children, the 12 children became the offspring of Israel, which is why we refer to them as Israelites. It's not like they're a biological race of their own. They're a people that God called out. And God has always had a people. And it was represented in the Old Testament by Israel. But now that he's speaking metaphorically to the Gentiles, they're taking on Israel's history when they are in Christ. Just like we take on Israel's history as our own when we are in Christ. Okay, so let's look at another one. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and all this idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you don't want to join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. Thomas R. Schreiner, again, he writes that it's difficult to believe that Peter would characterize his fellow Jews as indulging in such blatant sins, where the vices named in chapter 4 are descriptive of how first century Jews perceived the Gentile way of living. Remember, we're not talking pre-exile, where Israel is largely idolatrous. We're talking post-Second Temple era now, that gave birth to the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the, and the, and the Sanhedrin, where Jesus comes on the scene and says, you're actually overly legalistic. You tithe mint and cumin, but your hearts are evil. So they're not idolatrous in the way that uh, pre-exilic Israel was. They're idolatrous in ways that they turn to their good works and their ability to fulfill the law as their way of salvation. And that's problematic for Jesus, just as much as idolatry was problematic for Yahweh. It's wrong when we're not wholly and fully dependent on Christ for our all, for our everything. So in light of both the geographical evidence, these are Roman provinces in Asia Minor, and the internal evidence of the letter that we just looked at, it's my opinion that it's doubtful that Jewish Christians comprised more than a minority of Peter's original audience. You're more than welcome to disagree. I'm just saying that as we preach through the letter, my opinion will be informed by a Gentile audience. Is that fair? Okay. So, we can move on to our final category. Date and occasion. When we talk about the date of 1 Peter, it's hard to disconnect it from the authorship. There are three common dates for 1 Peter. It was either written under the reign of Nero, under the Flavians, while Domitian was in charge, or under Emperor Trajan. By the way, all of these are historical characters that you don't need the Bible to confirm. So you can read the Bible horizontally with world civilization history as well. Now, the majority of those who affirm a late date and deny Petrine authorship, they usually date the letter to the time of the Roman Emperor Domitian. And if they date it to Domitian, it's like AD 80s or AD 90s. Look, there are less conservative scholars who are willing to place it as late as the hostilities under Trajan. This would be as late as 110 AD. Peter was definitely dead before both of these. So if you agree that 1 Peter belongs in the canon and it is authoritative, but you reject Petrine authorship, you're going to date it to one of these two emperors, either Domitian or Trajan. 
if you believe, like I do, that Peter actually wrote the letter, then uh, you're going to be able to say this. If the Apostle Peter is the author of the letter, and if he wrote it from Rome, as the reference to Babylon in 5.13 suggests, then the letter was most likely written near the end of Peter's life while he was living in Rome. Look, to assign a specific date, like it's this year and no other year, that's conjecture. Nobody can do that, I don't care how smart you are. So it's likely that the letter, in my opinion, was written at some point in the 60s, which gives me 10 years plus or minus to be correct. And I think that's a safe guesstimate or estimate. To say that it's this date and this date only, that's conjectural. And that can be problematic because to make statements like that can be divisive. And we don't want to bring division in the body, we want to bring unity in the body. Okay, so in relation to the letter's date and its historical situation, some scholars like to argue that the persecution which the early church experienced, they say this persecution was state-sanctioned. They say that the emperors hated Christianity, and it was under the watchful eye of these Roman emperors that the church was being purposely persecuted. However, most scholars acknowledge that Peter and his readers are not facing official empire-wide persecution, but rather local, unorganized, and sporadic oppression. Is there any way for us to confirm this claim? Well, I believe that we can. I believe we can confirm this claim. We're going to do it by looking internally at 1 Peter 2, 13-15. Be subject to the Lord's sake to every human institution. That's a word for some of us today. Whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Foolish people. Not the governors who are going to be the ones who are actually bringing justice. We would agree with this statement. The emperor is supreme and the governors were sent by who? By the Lord himself to punish those who do evil. Raise your hand if you're down with the evil being punished. Anybody want to see child molesters put in prison? Yeah. How about rapists? How about murderers? Okay. Anybody want to see the innocent go free? How about those who do good praise? Well, Peter is saying that the human institutions and the governors bring that type of justice. He says you want to silence the foolish people, the local people who are persecuting you. Do good because you'll put to silence their ignorance when you're found to be innocent. Amen. We're looking at the internal evidence of the letter. Does it confirm local, unorganized oppression over and against state-sanctioned persecution? If this is the case, then we just identified the occasion for Peter's writing of the letter. Peter's writing a letter to encourage those who are suffering. <coughs> I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you're suffering today. Because if you don't raise your hand, you're lying. <laughs> It's wrong to minimize your suffering because you look out into the world and you see others who suffer to a greater degree. Do not marginalize the suffering that you experience because somebody else has it worse. Acknowledgement that somebody else has it worse is honorable. But it is actually false humility to say that I don't suffer because somebody else suffers worse. And false humility is rooted in pride. 
So the occasion for writing the letter is the fact that the church is suffering. <coughs> and they're suffering for the sake of Christ. Amen. Suffering for the church is nothing new. In this world, you will experience tribulation, Jesus said. Don't trip. I overcame the world. And because they hated me, they're going to hate you. How much more clear could he be? I can't read that and say that if I come to Christ, life's going to be easy. Actually read that and say, being a Christian is going to suck. Because the people I love are being hurt and marginalized and dying. I'm going to get angry. Ah, but Jesus told me to expect this because the world has been overcome. And by faith, I will receive my salvation on the day when the glory of God is manifested. That's what Peter writes in 1 Peter. Faith is what you're given. And it will manifest in salvation. What is salvation? It's being glorified on the day of his visitation. When he returns in the fullness of his glory to judge the living and the dead. That's all in 1 Peter. As I look out over our family today, I see people who need to be reminded of this. After we have suffered, listen to this church, after we have suffered a little while, this life is qualified by the statement, it's only for a short time. After we, church, have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called us to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us all. Amen. Amen. Yes, that's the good news. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ultimately, I know no greater claim. That's it. If you're suffering, that's your line. After we suffer a little while, the God of all grace who has called us to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us all. Amen. That's a good word. So we covered a lot of material today. A lot of material. It included a snapshot of the culture of the early church and how it's much different from how we do church. We talked about what an epistle is. Who may or may not have authored 1 Peter? The potential audience of the letter, largely Jewish, largely Gentile. Can we confirm the geography, the date, the situation which sparked Peter's desire to write to the churches throughout Asia Minor? So before we leave today, I just want to ask, are there any other questions? Then get ready, because in the weeks and months ahead, we're going to be digging in to 1 Peter. And it's going to be exciting. Yeah. I have one last thing to say. Put this slide up. Why do we do what we just did today? Why do we do it? Why do we come to church and spend an hour setting the context of the letter? If you come to Bible studies here on Wednesday night, and you have been coming, then this is old hat. But look, we actually are preparing to do this right now as a group. The letter was written in their town. And their town looks drastically different from our town. So how do we get there? 
into their town. When we recognize once we're there, everything is so different. What's different? It's the river that separates us. The culture, the language, the time, the geography, the situation. But I don't just want to understand it in their town, Mark. I don't just want to say it's cast theology that is not applicable to me in my life today. I want to take it from their town, and I want to live it out in my town. How do I do that when this river exists? How do I build this principalizing bridge? Well, we find the depth and the breadth and the height and the width of God's words in its theological and its doctrinal implications. And we say, okay, if it worked in their town, it's definitely going to get me to my town. And if it gets me to my town, it can get me from my town back into their town, which means the bridge is two-way. And the, the foundation of the bridge is the theology and the doctrine of God's word. That's why we do what we did today. Because it's not a one-step process, and it's not a two-step process. It's not a three- or four-step process. At minimum, it's a five-step process. This is how we study the Bible. And we have to be willing to say what the author intended and the audience understood matters to me. What their life is like matters to me. I want to know what God said to them so I know what God is saying to me. Because if I don't, don't know what God said to them, I might miss what God is saying to me. And that's where we draw our application. And if we get one, two, three, and four wrong, we're definitely going to be wrong on five. And we don't want to be wrong on any of them. So we do this together. We do this together. Does that make sense? Yeah. I'm going to pray. Yeah, yeah. Shauna's cheering. She's red grasping God's word. She knows. She knows about biblical interpretation. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite the worship team up here. We're going to close with a song. If you need prayer today, if you have family members who are sick, if someone in your family has passed away, if you're in a financial hardship, if you're mad at your husband or your wife, if you're hating your kids because they're rebellious and disrespectful, you need prayer. This back room is going to be open. I would encourage you that if you need prayer, you seek it out. If you're in physical pain, let's pray for healing. If you're doubting, let's pray for faith. Let's pray together. Because that's what the body of God does. So if you need prayer, the prayer team will be there. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. You are the truth. And because your word is truth and you are the truth, you are the only way to life. This is a very exclusive idea. And it's your idea. So we honor it, God. We say yes to whatever it is that you say yes to. And we say no to whatever it is you say no to. The letter says, be holy as God is holy. We want to be set apart, Lord. We want to be different to the degree that people see you in us and they desire it. God, I pray that as we go home this week, we would spend time in 1 Peter. That we may be prompted to read about the life of Sarah because she's mentioned. That we may be prompted to read about the life of Noah because he's mentioned. That we may be prompted to read Hosea because he's quoted. We may be prompted to read the suffering servant um, sections of Isaiah because those are quoted. We may turn to the Psalms because they're quoted. Help us this week, Lord, to pursue you by spending time with you in your word. God, we love you, and we only love you because you first loved us. Yeah. So help us, Father, to be like you in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.